Listener Production. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. In this series, we talk to industry leaders about the global and local developments that you need to be across this week. Well, this year we've seen a stack of structural movement at the top end of blue chip marketing. By structural, I mean new titles, new remits, bigger jobs for marketers and even expanded definitions for marketing itself. A month back, we had three chief customer officers from EMS High Pages and My Car, the old Kmart, Tire and Auto, unpacking what they do and how different that looks to a traditional marketing gig. We've also seen Coles and IAG in recent months replace the CMO role with chief customer officers. And in recent weeks, ANZ's CMO, Sweeta Mayra, was appointed Managing Director of ANZ's Everyday Banking Business. Today, we've got a seriously new development for a CMO. Three months ago, the $3 billion Lion Brewing and Drinks business elevated its marketing boss, Anubis Saharasra Bude, to Chief Growth Officer. We speculate sometimes wildly on what these new titles and roles mean for the traditional CMO function. Sometimes it's simply rebadging. But Anuba's role seems to me to be one very big stretch into some new territory. She not only has responsibility for marketing, mergers and acquisitions and enterprise-wide transformational innovation that goes well beyond new product development, and we'll get our heads around that later, Anuba has been given the business-wide mandate to run, wait for it, IT and technology. And yes, you did hear that right. A former global CMO is now the CTO, CIO, CDO, and more of a $3 billion drinks business operating across ANZ and the US. There's so many WTF questions to ask, as it so happens. On the mics today, we've got Anuba, who was a global marketing leader at Mars, Wrigley and Coke before returning to Australia in 2021 to join Lion as CMO. She's here to help the great unwashed, like me, figure out the what, why and how of what seems like a really groundbreaking move. As you're about to find out, the strategic rationale from Lion's CEO, Sam Fisher, to put a CMO into a chief growth officer role and load it with the company's entire IT strategy and investment is whip smart on paper. But how the hell is that going to work? Well, let's not waste any time. We've got the person of the moment on the mics. Welcome, Anuba. Let's get straight to this first WTF. It's a fascinating one. You've got charge of IT and tech along with those other huge remits I mentioned up top. For one, how's your coding and ERP smarts going, Anuba? And then please explain why have you got IT and tech? And then we'll try and cram a three-hour convo into the next 30 minutes on how that all ties in with innovation, mergers and acquisitions, marketing and your growth mandate. I think we'll fall short, but please explain and welcome. Great to have you back on. No, thank you, Paul. Great to be back on a sunny Friday. So, hey, look, I obviously I'm, I'm tapping into my um, inner nerd as I get my head around the new <laughs> remit and uh, it's hurting my brain in a really good way. So, yeah, there are plenty of WTF moments that I've had as well, but, you know, at, at its heart, I think I've said pretty consistently for the last 12 to 18 months that the two biggest forces in business are consumer and technology. So with that context, you know, I guess the lens of Lion being a challenger business really meant we could lean into why that would make sense to bring it together. And with a pretty fearless boss that enjoys the idea of disrupting and doing things differently in order to get ourselves back into a winning position, it makes entire sense that you bring these two giant forces together and see how you can actually create a better outcome in terms of the growth agenda for Lion. So that's a little bit of the of the why. 
It's probably worth uh, just mentioning some context around your boss, as you call him, Sam Fisher, CEO. He was, he arrived last year and he was ex-Diageo uh, regionally. So right? so Sam, good... Sam absolutely arrived a year ago and he, he did head up Asia Pacific for Diageo. And I think like anyone that comes from a global multinational background, including myself, I think the beauty of having a smaller business on the one hand allows you great freedom and experimentation to actually do things differently because you know all too well what gets in the way in big companies. So the ability to actually have, you know, what is not a small business, but indeed not a multinational sort of weighed down with a lot of the the typical hierarchies and bureaucracies, it almost, you know, makes total sense to say why not and to actually go against what convention would tell you that you need to have these specialised functions. And we're saying, no, why don't we crash them together and actually orient the entire enterprise around a consumer growth agenda? And that's what we're setting out to do. Super interesting. So how did this come about, though? Where did the wild idea to put IT in with a CMO? Because if we think about this historically, there's been a lot of observations that marketing has probably been behind the eight ball and getting up to speed with tech at an enterprise level. And that's probably been going at it for five, six, seven, ten 10 years, really. But then suddenly, and we haven't seen any movement. This is early for me. I haven't seen anything like this. Uh, I don't think, well, I haven't, you, you may have seen it. How did it come about? How did these conversations happen? I think the conversations came about when you actually um, put together two things. One is, what's the business ambition that you have as an enterprise, as opposed to functional ambitions? And second, what investments and capabilities have to be aggregated to realise that vision? When you actually start to boil it down to those key questions, you see that we are absolutely obsessed with understanding marketing performance, how it relates to the CFO's metrics and how that all works. Yet on the other side of the equation, the enormity of every organization's technology investments are probably not scrutinized through the lens of how does it help enable consumer growth by better meeting customer or consumer needs. So I think that lens on why technology, why technology investments um, just hadn't been put together through the lens of does it serve our bigger business ambition and ask, asking that basic question. I think for too long, marketers have been told that they need to speak the language of the CFO. And it's, it's actually quite a boring narrative because I'd like to say that marketers absolutely understand um, their role in, in driving the PL. I think on the other hand, which is why bringing quote unquote IT through the lens of consumer is for all too long, I think the enormity of IT, CTOs, CIOs, not actually speaking the language of the consumer in terms of valuable consumers to solve total addressable market. And therefore, why does that technology enable a sales guy to do his job better, a supply chain person to do their job better, and a marketer to, to reach consumers better. So I just think it's actually a more leveling conversation to talk about what is the common business language that any leader needs to speak. And in order to do that, you actually need to bring these two things together, consumer and technology. Yeah. And it's a great little line there because you're actually inverting yep, um, sure the, the current logic really is what you're doing, right? Completely. Yep. So just interesting though, historically then if you say IT hasn't necessarily looked through the lens of consumer and, and growth, how would you define the IT function and how it served generally, not just in line, but across the board? What has IT essentially been doing then? 
or how has it been operating? So at first, I, I think it's important to disaggregate elements of technology. So I think IT in its traditional definition has really been put in the remit of a support function. And then what you've seen happen because of the speed of technological progress in any function and enterprise is almost like the weeds grow up of all sorts of technology investments and structures within functions. So you'll have a supply chain technology function. MarTech and what we're doing in marketing function and sales, therefore they're disaggregated and disconnected. So IT has been seen as a support function. And then as these growth driving technologies emerge, they've been put into functional silos. And therefore, if you step back and look at the whole ecosystem of technology for an enterprise, um, for the most part, they're much more disconnected than they could or should be. And I think that talks to the digital IQ of an organisation. And I've done plenty of, you know, crash course reading. And I think the irony is while technology investments have increased exponentially across any organisations, whether Australia or the world, that doesn't actually equate or translate to the level of growth you would expect from those investments made. And I think what we're saying, and we don't by any means suggest we have it right, we're only just starting, is why don't we have a common language and lens from which to assess both our consumer and our technology choices and, and make sure they're adding up to our growth ambitions. So that's what we're setting out. Good articulation. I know we were talking the other day and I sort of stupidly questioned the notion of, so how does a CMO get their head around, what qualifications you got for an IT CTO uh, role? And you quite quickly uh, put me back in my place by saying, well, Paul, this is the same, it's no different to a CFO. A CFO, does a CFO know anything more about tech and IT systems than a CMO? And it's probably pretty valid, right? So that's actually, when you put it that way, it's like, that's a leveller. So my next question then, well, actually, you know, that's what you've seen, correct? You did say that, didn't you, Anuba? I absolutely said that because I think, again, I think they're the dominant paradigms that have always existed, which is if IT and certainly in much bigger organisations, you'll either have a very separated CTO that actually reports directly to a CEO by nature of the industry, or it's very common to have technology or IT under a CFO. No one's ever, ever asked why. So I guess we did. And so yeah. at the end of the day, it's about the business. And if you've got enough, as I say, you need to be dangerous enough to ask the right questions. And I strongly believe that, which is you need to know enough to be asking the right question. And I reckon you're probably working up a little bit of this naivety thing to actually get to some really interesting space. I think the naivety is the single biggest strength that that certainly a CMO or myself brings to the table because it is the great leveller because we always joke, right, if you can't explain it to your mother or your five-year-old kid, then you actually don't know what you're talking about. And I think, you know, people accuse marketers of all of their acronistic language that we speak and we've learned to speak the language of the CFO and the language of business. Likewise, I think technology is bamboozling the speed at which no one wants to appear dumb. I'm very happy appearing dumb. And I think at both board levels and exec levels, the fear of we better just trust the IT and the technology people because we're too stupid. And it's like actually the art is being able to translate that into the so what, now what for a managing director, a CEO, a supply chain head, because then you know you've got skin in the game um, and you're steering the organisation fully. So fearless, really, you have to be in asking the questions that may appear dumb or silly, yep. but actually are under the hood, getting to a completely different 
outcome. Completely, because yeah. the complexity is overwhelming. So I think there's an art in simplifying without being reductive because there's incredibly complex things that sit under, you know, data and analytics and core ERP platforms. But again, great leaders are able to simplify in a way that makes sense to, to again, the value equation that ultimately everyone's trying to unlock. Firstly, if you've got this IT CTO remit now, or they report into you at least, what could it look like and what will it be doing differently already? What can you see can be done differently under your watch? How will it actually transpire? Yeah, I think first of all, yeah, we we have absolutely collapsed, I think, the layers and hierarchies in a traditional CTO and really gone in a model of run, grow, transform, because technology, again, you can't reduce technology down to the word IT. So you have run technology, which is keep the lights on, do all that. I think the grow and transform areas in terms of digital delivery, that has to be linked to valuable consumer problems. So what we are doing is connecting our strategy teams with our data and intelligence teams with those grow technology teams to actually coalesce around consumer problems. And typically they've been siloed. It's, is IT gets an order from a particular function and goes and delivers it without thinking, without questioning. We're saying by bringing and crashing all these- Take a ticket, problems, get in the line. Help yeah. desk, take a ticket. We're actually saying the same way we would approach innovation in marketing is design thinking and upstream, the way we approach CX, UX, innovation, actually bringing all of that together with core technology. Because these are super clever people that understand a whole lot and actually bring a whole different perspective to the problems to solve. So we're doing some little test use cases in how we're going to work together and and they're yielding some really interesting things in terms of what are the problems we have in sales or marketing or supply chain? How does this, how do these squads come together to, to, to do that? Um, and that's been really interesting because they've never been in the same room and they've never talked together. So... Well, and I was going to say, how are the IT and tech teams um, going at the moment? Are they a bit bewildered by having um, some crazy chief growth officer come in and say, actually... Uh- they completely are, but I would say this. I keep saying the biggest mindset shift is stop thinking of yourself as a support function. I think for years they've thought about themselves in service of, and now it's like you're in service of the consumer and the business, not in service of the person whining at the end of the help desk. So I think that's, you know, it is a little frivolous to say that, but it's actually the mindset shift that I'm trying to drive in them by giving them the education and um, the awareness of how what they do contributes to ultimately that end consumer having a better beer or, or, or a better experience. And just to be clear on this, have you seen this role anywhere else with the remit that it's got? Was there a trigger for this somewhere uh, offshore? No, I would say this is just Sam Fisher. So I think (laughs) and in all honesty had debates going, I get data and insights, advanced analytics. That's very normal in, in marketing functions all across the board. But then the extension into core IT, ERP platform, SAP, that was like, really, are you sure you know what you mean? And he's like, yeah, (laughs) you've got to derive value out of the whole ecosystem. So it all needs to be together. We can't have that off to one side. And it's like, yeah, fair call. Let's make it work. So I guess the mindset is, 
you know, how to make it work. And so I'm, you know, absolutely blessed with much smarter people than I am around me, advising me. I've gone on massive listening tours and spoken to all the clever CIOs and CTOs in some of Australia's biggest organisations. And, you know, funnily enough is everyone's facing similar problems. No matter how advanced we think someone else is, there's there's always something. So that's been actually quite reassuring as I wait. Yeah. What, without naming names, although you're welcome to, what what was the the sort of the counsel you got back? Oh, look, I think the counsel was chunk everything down. I think I have a mantra of progress over perfection. So you need to be able to chunk down the progress you want to make because it's overwhelming. So in, again, some of Australia's best known and largest beloved institutions, quotes like, well, data is a fucking shit show. And trying to get <laughs> function X to collaborate with function Y around that central view of a customer. And I have to say, I was shocked because what makes this more challenging in consumer goods than financial services or other services is we don't own the data the way a retailer, Woolies X owns the data or banks own your your data. We're dealing with third party, we're dealing with all sorts of data sources to sense make and then you know, try and get insight and value out of that. So it was actually quite reassuring to hear that they have all of this dysfunction as they try and and do better. So that was reassuring. And also I think reinforcing of the fact that we're we're actually smashing through the functional silos because, again, we're not gigantic. So how can we leverage the fact that we can be smaller and a bit more fearless because we, we don't have to have all that bureaucracy and that's what I guess there's a little bit of intrigue from other CIOs of, of yeah. this thing. There would have been like, was there a, what the? Totally, <laughs> totally. And I, and I think it is the, as always, the grass is always greener. When you're in these behemoths, um, your size is a positive and also a negative. And when you're smaller, it's like let's actually, again, flip the script and, and make it a positive to see how you can do things differently and why can't that be a blueprint um, for something Outside of IT and tech and infrastructure, you've got innovation. Now, you talk about transformational innovation, which could be sort of sounded like, here we go, here's buzzy buzz. But the idea behind it, though, is that it goes beyond product and it goes through the enterprise on a whole bunch of things. Just unpack that a little bit, Anuba. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably the why we've, um, without being too wordy-wordy, we've deliberately called it ventures, not innovation. This is very common in giant global organisations. And the reason is that most operating business units actually can't walk and chew gum at the same time. Innovation is the lifeblood of of any organisation. CPG does it well. Most organisations do it. They have to do it. But then the idea of getting ahead in terms of horizon two and three to actually be able to have the freedom to experiment, fail and learn before being choked by the mandate of scale and return and what's it doing for my business, that's what we're disaggregating and that's why it goes beyond product because that goes into service models, business models, um, should we acquire, should we buy, build or borrow, should we partner? And I think that's that's what's interesting um, about the space and the team that we're standing up, really small, like five people. It's not about having armies of people because the very nature of it is experimental and small and seeing whether it can fulfil enough of, you know, the consumer willingness and needs to actually move to test and learn before it goes to scale. And again, the impatience of weekly sales, monthly sales and yearly sales are never going to allow for that incubation. And I I think that's what we're doing. This part of the world, we should be doing it better than anyone because we've got that going for us between Australia and New Zealand. And I think that's an exciting avenue of 
identification of what future revenue streams could be, and that's really its intent. What sort of capability and people do you have in that small ventures team? What, what do they consist of? Yeah, I think the capabilities we have, uh, first of all, broad ranging. As I said, I don't want a brand manager that can do the next flavor of said thing because that's a very different capability. So we've got people, all of them have absolute experience in true venturing, some from big global national, global multinationals, which we've managed to lure home, which is amazing, and some from startups because, again, that very notion we've got to have, and we said if we're going to do this, they're not marketers that just like innovation. They are genuinely people that come from all walks of what it means to do experimental innovation. So it is an experiment, and so therefore we, we need to walk the talk on the capabilities. So that's what we're, we're doing. I mean, literally my head of ventures is still in the process of recruiting to stand up that team and, and really take that approach. And there's, you know, tech were the masters at this approach. I mean, it was pioneered in Silicon Valley in terms of how you iterate and work your way to scale without killing ideas too quickly because you haven't given them time to do that. And again, I think big businesses like ourselves are great at killing ideas fast because they don't meet financial return thresholds quickly enough. So we're trying to delineate so that we can do both and really learn from that. And so this is borrowing a bit from tech and and startups on incremental development then, yeah? Iterative development. And I mean, a DevOps methodology and the way you do that is very much that, right? I mean, the test release, which is so normal in the IT um, tech space, is just not as advanced in what we would consider our normal innovation space. So again, you can see the cross-functional opportunities because my ventures team will absolutely be using our DevOps team to kind of rapidly prototype and how we do some of those things differently using technology. So I know everyone's joking about ChatGPT and whichever other AI co-pilot, but we're starting to experiment in how we can do that and actually go faster in concepting. And uh, so that's a really exciting space. We've got a little working group on what's going to be the application of AI in some of our spaces in this new growth functions. That's pretty fun. Hey, so just on that with ventures, and then you've got M&A as well. And I think you were pretty entwined with Lions buyout and integrations, right, of, of, of the craft brewing brand Stone & Wood, which you say is going gangbusters. That's worked really well. And also um, Four Pillars, just got to say, Negroni Spiced, my favourite gin. But it sounds like you're going to land some more acquisitions. And you got that remit as well, Anuba. I have a corporate strategy team whose job is to work with finance M&A to identify opportunities based on our business strategy. So yes. So what we are that doing- That reports in, into you. So strategy reports into me, M&A reports into finance and they work together because at the end of the day, M&A is a transaction, which is a financial yeah. transaction. The strategic identification of the opportunity is very much in, in my remit. And so I think stone and wooden four pillars, if I retrofit them, are great examples of going, they are linked to our business strategy. They are about identifying growth value streams, craft beer, stone and wood being by far and away the best, fastest growing brand and business. Four Pillars, Boutique Australian Premium Gin, again, spirits, fast growing, incremental to our core business. So you can see the logic strategically. So yes, our team right now is is thinking about different platform opportunities, actually thinking of how to traverse the US, Australia, New Zealand, and actually thinking US back um, in terms of where our you know market opportunities are across those markets, which is which is again really exciting, given what's going on in in the world of consumer dynamics in in each of those markets. 
let's get to uh, the growth bit in your title. Does it mean you've got revenue responsibility? And I ask that because I think you've probably heard the or read the piece on the chief customer officer thing we did the other the other uh, the other week. In there, those three uh, from those companies talked about how they had revenue responsibility. Some CCOs don't. You're a chief growth officer. How does it work for you in that KPI and that revenue line? Yeah, I think the first differentiator, which is important, is unlike those companies, we're not a we're not one market, and I'm not across one market. So the short answer is no, we don't have revenue responsibility because we have three autonomous business units: US, Australia, New Zealand. So the revenue and PL opportunity is with you know, the marketing and sales directors in those in those units. So therefore ours isn't, but ours is quantifiable from the context of what's the incremental revenue that can be generated through the growth initiatives. So if that's ventures, acquisition, whatever, that's clearly quantifiable. In IT or technology, there's two dimensions. One is top line growth. If we implement new systems or technologies that will identify growth opportunities, sales and supply chain are great areas. And or cost avoidance, because I think one of the biggest areas of value creation, which is nowhere near as sexy to talk about, is actually in the area of, you know, how you avoid cost because of the use of technology. So what I'm saying to my guys is, where do you implement better inventory control technology or better sales call cycle technology if you're saving on better planning, less write-offs, less waste, that's very quantifiable as value to the business. Yeah, yeah, right. right. So again, it's orienting the mindset around value, both in terms of top line, as well as let's call it efficiency in terms of bottom line, but all of it is value. And there's plenty of that to be realized through our total value chains. So that's how we're measuring our contribution to growth. Got it. I've got a big hairy question for you, which is moving on. Uh, it sort of comes out of the marketing sort of prism, really, which is um, with everything you've just talked about then, what does marketing become in three to five years? What are the skill sets and thinking that today's probably classically trained marketing professionals need to develop? And is it for everyone what's going on now for you or do they stay in their swim lane pretty much like they are now? Are there any swim lanes, really? I think that's the the truth of it. So my... my um the most interesting reflection I've had on that question when I was given this remit was I got told to read a book by a far cleverer consultant called Range. Have you read it, Paul? Because my answer to your question is that book. And what that book essentially does, and I highly recommend the book Range, is basically saying that our world is becoming hyper-specialized. So, I mean, every single day there's a skill that you don't have, either as a marketer or anything else. Range is saying that the differentiator in leadership over the next horizon is the ability to orchestrate and connect in a hyper-specialised world. So I think for me, and I think, you know, my remit talks to the fact that I'm not going to sit here and go, oh, my God, I can't do IT and I can't code and I don't understand SAP. It's not the point. Can I orchestrate across functions, across capabilities in order to drive a business outcome. And I think marketers, even in the field of marketing alone, the level of specialization because of technology, because of bottom line pressure or CFO pressure means that what is the definition of a classical marketer? Because if you come from CPG, it means one thing. If you come from B2B marketing, it means something completely different. So I'm going to say that agnostic of what is a marketer, because it's so variable by industry, it's this range thinking that I think takes us away from, you know, the hyperbolic conversations about the skills we lack because we'll never keep pace 
with with emerging capabilities, but what we need to be is across them and making sure that all those capabilities and skills are actually meaningful because a bunch of them aren't. And so that's where you have to be able to curate what is actually fit for purpose for your organisation versus trying to keep up with the arms race that is the latest in technology or the latest performance marketing metric or the latest. It's insane, right? So I kind of switch off to a lot of that noise because at the end of the day, what is right for industry A or company B has nothing to do with what I'm doing at the moment. So it's important to So to me, uh, can I then paraphrase your answer to, it sounds like, um, you know, specific capabilities, uh, that's a movable feast, but essentially the quality of leaders is going to be the ability to have wide vision, curiosity, and join dots. 100%. Really interesting stuff. So what about this, uh, Anuba? You've been back in the local market, in the Australian market, uh, long enough now from 20 years overseas, doing all sorts of international endeavours. You've been back long enough to form a solid view, I think, on the Australian marketing and media industries and business more broadly. Give us your take on both, i.e. what do you make of what's going on in the state of agencies, consultants, media operatives, and then that broader Australian business mindset, because this continues to be a conundrum for me, at least, the sort of sample of one, um, which is Australians are widely, and I hear it all the time, Australians are widely regarded overseas to be fast, smart, get shit done executives with an appetite for risk and pragmatic innovation, if you like, uh, yet we are so tight and risk-averse and conservative here, conservative here. Am I barking up a tree that's just wayward? Look, I don't think you are. And I, I've, you know, since I've been back, you know, as I say, I've, I've tried to do my sense-making and kind of go, how do I feel and all those kinds of things. You know what it comes down to? I don't know whether you just read, and and to me, this is this so nails it in a way. Kantar's brand Z top 100 global brands and then Australian brands. If you just contrast the two of them, I think it really talks to potentially your hypotheses around the risk aversion. Australia, by definition, because we are so far away from the world, is the biggest brands that make up our world here in Australia are financial services, telcos, these highly regulated industries. So is it any wonder that risk aversion and none of that sort of, you know, breakthrough and fearlessness come through? When you look at the US or the global rather, because now China is very much featuring in that list, what you see is obviously tech by far and away leads the pack, but then you see the giant consumer brands. Coke made it back to the top 10 and, you know, things like that. It's a very different shape and therefore the overall profile, therefore, of risk-taking and breakthrough is just very, very different to what we see here. So where we tend to see that in Australia, the way I've decoded it is because these industries are inherently regulated and somewhat boring, the interesting breakthroughs are coming in the way they're trying to approach communication and experience because that's the only thing they can control. So because I think Australians are creative and I think they want to play outside their sandpit, they're fairly constrained by the nature of the industries that have the most money and the most influence, shall we call it, outsize influence on how we perceive the Australian landscape. At least that's my take on it. And then when I think about agencies, media, what I see and probably fully biased now through the lens of my new remit is now going, oh my God, what do I actually want from agencies? What are the critical skills and capabilities? Because some of those ones are starting to morph into the the internet of everything as well, or the everything everywhere all at once. And and I think that is also an interesting thing. So I see agencies 
struggling with identity in terms of, but we can do this and we do purpose and we also do technology and we do this. And I think the ones that I'm certainly gravitating towards actually understand what their differentiating capability is and is sticking to it because I haven't yet seen an example where everyone that promised me the A to Z of everything is delivering on that. So I think that's a dangerous thing in a market as small as Australia. I understand the efficiency of wanting to provide the one-stop shop, but I'm yet to see it actually yield meaningful reasons for companies, organizations like myself to tie yourself to the one that promises the one ring to rule them all. I'm I'm not seeing it. Interesting. Well, it goes back to your very earlier point about specialisms, where the thing is going, where everything is going at a macro is down to specialism. So you're saying you'll prefer specialist capabilities over all you can eat and the, to the management tasks that's on you or your team to manage multiple specialists so that's it. is a better trade-off. Because that's what, I mean, if, if agencies and partners are reflective of our own organisation, I know two years ago when I came into Lion, what capabilities I brought into the marketing function and they were highly specialised specialized, whether it's creative strategists, media connection planners, very, very specific skill sets, because a quote unquote classic brand manager simply doesn't have the bandwidth to do them all at the level needed to produce outstanding work. So if you follow that logic through, then the partners are a reflection of the capabilities you have as extensions of your team. And this idea of generalist in that is different. At an executive level, I think the idea of orchestrating all those capabilities and being able to aggregate them, including your agency, whether you call it a bloody tribe, a village or a cupboard, whatever, they also have to be clear enough on what role they play for the bigger outcome because the mess that happens is when that's a hot mess and no one knows what their role is and everyone's straying into other lanes and then everyone's unhappy. So we've been very, very purposeful about trying to keep that very simple right now and certainly in Australia in terms of creative agency, media agency, and then bespoke digital capabilities as needed. But it does put an onus back on you and a resource onus back on on the the company, i.e. Lion, to be able to manage that properly. But I strongly believe, and, and yeah, not just my Lion time, but probably my previous company's time, that you can never abdicate or delegate orchestration of capabilities for outcomes. How can you abdicate that responsibility? That's your job as the enterprise. And then the art of, again, curating and orchestrating is an art. And I just, this idea that you just toss it to the agency and let them work it out, um, I just don't buy into it at all. A side quip, though, I will say that's just not in agency world. What we know in Australia is that per capita, Australia is the biggest spender on consulting in the world, government and private enterprise. So outsourcing even business strategy is a thing that's done here. Whether that's an ass covering exercise, I don't know, but that goes all the way through Australian enterprise. It's extraordinary, actually, how much government, for all they plead poor, are using all the uh, well-known consultants to the tune of millions and millions. And again, I just don't think you can abdicate your business strategy. I understand, again, every organisation is different. So if you don't have those capabilities in-house, I mean, I'm, again, very lucky. I have an incredibly talented strategy team that will come from those backgrounds. So the idea of then paying another consultant on top of what we have already is, is different. So I think you have to identify the problem you have and then the lack of capability before you you go shopping like that. So I, at the moment, I've got a full moratorium on any consultants because we have so many partners. I'm just trying to sense make all those partnerships and making sure we're extracting the right value and got the clear R&R between them all before we bring on more people to help. 
I mean, that's the reality, though. You've got to be able to, you know, you've got to have an enterprise from the top commitment to, oh, we're going to, we're going to bring that capability, that strategy, and that now in house. And if you don't have it, totally. if they don't have, if they don't invest in it, you know, they have to go outside. And that's a different choice, absolutely, absolutely, because some people can't bring them in house. And it's interesting. Obviously, there's been lots of, did I read? I'm sure I read it on MI3 Treasury bringing all their things in house. You know, so and again, these things go in cycles. But I think you just need to be clear on your model. I think where it all falls down is when it's too too much of half pregnant so you're not fully in-house and you're not fully this and then everyone's confused and it's actually quite inefficient from a from a spend standpoint um, as well. You talk about being focused this whole growth chief growth officer remit is to be sort of force the company to be super focused on the customer consumer and that mandate. What sort of consumption trends for example and products are emerging on your radar at the moment that's kind of interesting and I know you go beyond product but what, what is going on in the consumer landscape? I think first and foremost and it's, it's it's an existential thing particularly when you're oriented as a beer company is is the fact that you know beer has been in structural decline for three decades so so if my job is to think about future-proofing the business through the lens of growth, then that's the biggest obvious thing that we have to reshape what the business looks like based on where the consumers are going. Where are the consumers going? They're still highly sober curious to the tune of 30 to 35% of Gen Zennials don't drink, period. So when you project that forward in terms of what your total addressable You mean alcohol? Alcohol, right? So What is then, happening to the world? That is, what is happening to the world? But here's the interesting thing. Everyone knows, you know, why do people use alcohol? Is social lubricant? Does it make you feel good? They're just using other things. So it's not like the need has been replaced. What's been replaced is how they fulfill that need, which is whether it's edibles, because as the US becomes more and more open state by state in terms of things like this, then they just they just shift in terms of the vehicle for delivery of that need. And by the way, that links to health and wellness where they think that has far less harmful effects on their body than slamming back 20 tequilas or, or beers. So so I think we see this shift in terms of, of course, what they're consuming to fulfil those needs. I think um, second, which again... Sorry, just in case anyone doesn't know, uh, Anuba's talking about weed there, by the way, because it's legal in parts of the US. Just in case, when you said edibles, I thought, I better be clarified, better clarify, yeah. Edibles, absolutely. So I think the other big thing, and certainly we we see it in Australia, but it's all over the world, is this idea of, um, we call it, you know, sort of Asian discovery. So I think you see that in the land of spirits and RTDs. And this is, I'm talking about the alcohol industry, which is Japanese provenance and actually broadly Korean, Chinese. There's all sorts of interesting things happening in that space. First of all, you see it already in the non-alcoholic space with bubble teas and things like that. So you can see that people are looking for experience and texture and novelty and all these amazing things. So we can see a progression of, of how that is playing out in terms of what types of things people want to drink and how they want to drink them. Uh, I think um, social consciousness and again, especially with Gen Z is enormous in terms of sustainability and whether that's in our packaging, our go-to-market, our footprint, that that is still there. It's a big deal. How you lean into that and crack that is in multiple ways, particularly in the context of people are socializing differently. So I think the overwhelming umbrella we need to lean into is the pub is not the only expression of how sociability comes to life when you gather with friends. So, and this is not just a COVID thing because that that's the easy answer. It is generally a difference in how 
and where people are social. They want to experience, right? yeah, where they, how they want to experience exactly. stuff, right? And, and so the pub and what's interesting about the pub is because it's so entrenched in our cultural DNA with Anglo-Saxon roots, when you look at the shifting shape of what the under-35s look like in Australia and New Zealand actually, actually in the US as well, then it becomes a very different thing in terms of what they expect and therefore you see all the cool little tea shops and coffee shops and, again, it's where they're socialising is is looking and feeling quite different. So how do we ensure we're there wherever there's a social moment becomes a very different route to market, it becomes a different channel strategy. So you can see that that um, emergence of fragmentation in terms of place and, you know, we're going to see a whole digital backlash in terms of people wanting real experiences, real humans, and, and we're seeing that because the anxiety and tension that the digital world is creating and whether that's social media platforms, you know, all the the narrative around that, the toxicity of it all means inevitably there's there's a backlash and I think this is where these, you know, connective moments become really important in real life, IRL, Paul, IRL. Yeah, I was literally going to say hashtag IRL. That sounds like I'm a dag, totally, e-dad totally. on the dance me floor. Me too. Sorry, My but... kids tell me that all the time, so it's fine. Yeah, well, where we were aligned. Um, so th- that experience thing, just to round that out, you, you made some comment, and I don't know if it's true or not, but when we last talked about sort of it's almost the experience things gets to, you know, people wanting to go for Texas ranch cactus yep. sort of drinking water. That, it's that sort of crazy stuff that's going on. The crazy stuff is definitely always going to be there on the fringes, and I think that is inherent frankly, in any generation, discovery, novelty, exploration, you know, with, you know, especially with this need for inclusivity, I think as an overarching sort of cultural theme in agnostic of geographies, inclusivity is enormous. And I think it's fair to say, similar to what I just described with the pub, is that we need to make sure given at the heart of what our category is, is people coming together to have a good time is what does that look like both at a product level, as well as an experience social level, and not just have a one-dimensional view of that, which we all grew up with, um, because it's just not cutting it with with younger people. Um, and I know that from my own bloody kids and how yeah, they're Yeah, same, right? Yeah, you talked about the, ja- the Japanese provenance. You know, my boys are all into some new fancy 96. 196, I don't know what it's called now. exactly. That's it, 196. Is that going, that's going off, is it? That has been a very, very successful product launch, but stay tuned. I think a ton is about to hit the market now and as we in the lead up to summer i do want to ask you finally i keep thinking things i don't know if it was you but somewhere i heard that even like um solo this, this, this thing called a hard solo as an alcoholic solo that's getting interesting look and that, that's the the same way we talk about fluidity of gender and we talk about you know identity is fluid so are categories so this idea that that's a soft drink that's alcohol that's a food that everything is being, you know, it is the mashup of all of that because, you know, at its most clinical and business-like, it's just smart to leverage the strength of a master brand if it can extend relevantly somewhere else rather than launching a new brand. So I think every brand, and I, I strongly believe this, every brand needs to understand the limits of its credibility in order to make sure it can leverage maximum opportunities, but they have to be defined, but you do need to find the edges. You do. You have to find the edges of your brand. What do you see as, you know, you're three months in, you've got a little bit of a context. What's the biggest challenges you see to making this big new brief of yours work? Uh, Look, that is an enormous question, but I have to bring it down to a very boring answer, which is culture change. People are entrenched in their habits, 
the expectations and the way we've done things. And we are literally in the process of tearing that down and showing a way to do it differently. And that takes time. Um, And, you know, I don't have a lot of time. I've put 500 day challenge (laughs) on my team. I have. Wow. Because I, I think for something this big in terms of culture shift for our organization, you actually have to put some tension in the progress because otherwise everyone throws up their hands and says it's too hard and it'll take too long. So 500 days is around 18 months. And I think if we can't demonstrate sufficient progress, then we can't justify our existence. So I'm very clear about that. And, you know, with 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 Sam, as well as my team to say, we need to earn our way to belief and, and this is the way to do it. But you have to chunk that down and 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 keep those milestones alive. So that's what we're doing. There's a big clock. Mid-24, is that right? Mid-2024. Yeah, is, is how can we demonstrate quantifiable value back to the enterprise for having crashed all this together? What what? How is it better tangibly than what it was when it was all fragmented? So I think that's, that's what it is. So I just um, unleashed that challenge on my team this week. So, you know, we are, wow, we are wow. going to measure that and hold us. I mean, you've got to, again, you've got to have some skin in the game, right? Otherwise we can push paper and I can say I can think about it for a very long time because they're the type of problems that you could spend a lot of time and a lot of consultants thinking about mm-hmm. how to approach it. So I think we're going to try and walk the talk in terms of get in there, iterate as we go, because we're just going to get in there. We're going to fuck it up. We're going to learn. We're going to evolve, but we've got to apply the same mentality we expect people to apply in their work. So I think that's go big or go home. Anuba Sahara Sabude, I am going to stop asking questions, but I promise you I'm going to hustle in a, in a little while to get an update because it does sound truly fascinating and, and an interesting, a really innovative sort of play here. So good luck with it. Can't wait to hear how it all goes and get back to work, I guess. Exactly. I better. <laughs> Days are ticking. Thank you. This MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre. That's more. Producer Nick Slater. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to listener.com or download the Listener app and search MI3 Audio Edition to listen for free. Listener.